So as we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount, we are entering in a section where Jesus is going to be engaging the law of God. Um, On the surface, it would seem he is going to reinterpret or even rewrite the law. But in reality, he is going to recapture God's law in its truest meaning. I haven't talked much about this yet in the sermon series, but the Sermon on the Mount has echoes of Mount Sinai. Moses went up on that mountain to hear from the Lord, to receive the law for Israel. It was, in a sense, the commissioning of this new nation of Israel. And um, in, in many ways, commentators have noted that Jesus, the true and better Moses, now ascends a mount to commission his kingdom, the fulfillment of Israel. But he does not receive instruction from God. He is the instruction. He, by his own authority, is outlining the ways, the ethics, and yes, the law of his kingdom. He begins with the Beatitudes, which we have spent so much time in, and I have argued are not necessarily laws as much as uh, the disposition, the posture of the citizens of his kingdom. So what role does the law play, the commandments? Is Jesus going to introduce new laws that abolish the laws of the older covenant? That's what the next major portion of the Sermon on the Mount is all about, where we will be in the coming weeks. And what Jesus is going to do is demonstrate that far from doing away with Mount Sinai's law, he has come to fulfill the moral law given to Moses. Let me introduce all of it this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount, with an illustration that I I did share in the conference, not in the main sessions, but in some of the breakout sessions. I used it to describe the way we approach sexuality and sexual ethics, but it applies across the board, ethically speaking. Uh, We have a dog named Millie. Uh, My relationship with Millie is a complicated one. It's a love-hate relationship, tends to drift more towards the side of hatred. And, And here's why. Millie and I got off to a very rough start in our relationship. When we first bought, brought her home, she, um, she's, she's Houdini. She's an escape artist. And if a door was cracked, she is gone. And I do mean gone. For whatever reason, she has a profound disdain for our yard and an absolute love affair with every yard in the neighborhood besides ours. So for that first year, a routine part of my day was chasing her down and trying to catch this nearly uncatchable quick dog. It involved me making a fool of myself before the neighbors, running, diving, whatever it took to grab this dog. And not surprisingly, this would create a visceral anger within me towards Millie. And so when I would finally catch her and uh, bring her back to the house, I did not harm our dog, uh, but you better believe I would shame the devil out of that dog. And so what she would do is she would run into her crate. We actually come to call it the crate of shame. She would run to the crate of shame and hide from my displeasure. And so much of her early life, she had two categories for life. Running away into a far-off country where she could get lost, stolen, hit by a car, just so much danger, or the crate of shame. But it didn't have to be that way, Millie. It doesn't have to be that way. We have a house where you are free to roam. We have a front yard. We have a backyard where you are free to run and play. There is more to life than the far-off country of danger or the crate of guilt and shame. And what I said during our conference is that 
this is a good picture of what we do with the erotic within us. It seems to me we have been presented with two options. Worldly indulgence without boundaries, taking our sexuality to dangerous places of destruction, or the church's purity culture response, which has essentially placed sexuality into a crate of shame. It's just so dangerous out there, so much destruction beyond the boundaries, that we're going to shame and suppress our sexuality and stuff it in a crate. But it's not just sexuality that we do this with. We are tempted to approach every ethical issue, every issue of morality this way. There is worldly immorality indulgence that disregards God's law, or there is religious fundamentalism that adds to God's law, restricting life to a miserable cage of shame and guilt. But those who disregard God's law or add to God's law are alike in this, neither understands the law. Indeed, neither loves God's law. The law, as we saw in our Old Testament reading, is beautiful. It is a beautiful thing, worthy of our love and admiration and even our delight. And we will see it that way when we approach the law the way Jesus approaches the law. Look at verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That is what he has come to do, to fulfill the law. And he's going to show us that fulfillment this morning in two ways. Fulfillment of the law's meaning and fulfillment of the law's demand. So the law's meaning and the law's demand. Let's watch him fulfill the meaning of the law. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it could not be clearer. Jesus is exceedingly pro-law of God. He says he will not compromise even an iota or a dot of the law. He says that the greatest in his kingdom are those who practice the law and teach the law. Jesus loves the law of God. Of course he loves it. He wrote it. But he loves the law in its truest meaning. The meaning that he ascribed to it when he authored it. You see, before the fall, there was no use for God's law. As long as we obeyed that original command not to eat from the forbidden tree, obedience to God was our natural instinct, and we did not need the law. But notice the name of the tree, the forbidden tree that they ate from. The tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil. So taking that forbidden fruit would introduce a new form of knowledge that humanity had never experienced. They would now know the tension of good and evil. Once they only knew goodness, but in eating of that which was forbidden, the human experience would fundamentally change by introducing this strange intruder called evil, which now competes against goodness. And so because the instinct of goodness has now been violated by the disarray of good and evil, God must reveal to us what once was instinctual to us. 
What is good? What is evil? God tells us in his law. And so the law is a good thing, which is why Jesus is so, so strongly affirms it in our passage. But our relationship with the law is now more complicated, much more complicated than Jesus' relationship with the law. By his nature, he loves the law. By our nature, we despise the law. The foundation of a fallen nature is we want to be our own God, and this is what that means. We want to write the law. We want to determine what is right and wrong rather than submit to what God says is right and wrong. The most obvious manifestation of this rebellion against God's law, in fact, so rebellious is our nature that being told what to do only entices us to break us. This is the most obvious manifestation of the fallen nature. We want to break his law. I once heard a very uh, respected, proper British theologian tell the story um, of riding on a train in England and noticing a sign that said, please refrain from spitting out the window. And he thought to himself, what a silly sign. Is that really a problem we have over here? Who in their right mind is spitting out the window? But as the train moved down the tracks, he couldn't stop thinking about the sign. And and he said, I started salivating. (laughs) And this proper Brit began fantasizing about standing up on his seat, lowering the window, just hocking a big loogie out the window. He said, he said, it was literally all I could do to resist the urge just because there was a sign telling me not to do it. This is the essence of our rebellion, our rebellious nature. Give us a rule and we want to break it. And so the most obvious manifestation of our hatred of God's law is our desire to break it. But there is another way we respond to God's law that demonstrates our fallen nature, and this is very important. The first is obvious and gets, a lot, gets talked about a lot. There's another way, and this is important for us to understand. We don't break God's rules. We add to God's rules. The reason why Jesus has to reinforce, not just in this passage, but throughout the Gospels, that he does, in fact, love God's law and have an allegiance to God's law is because everyone thought he was a lawbreaker. But he wasn't breaking God's law. He was breaking their man-made religious laws around God's law. So here's how it works. Go back to Millie. The obvious way to break the rule is to leave the yard. That's obvious. That's what we're tempted to do. Give us a rule. We want to break it. Here's the religious way to rebel against that rule. In order to ensure that she doesn't leave the yard, we will add a new rule that says she can't leave the house. She can't leave the house. She can't leave the yard, right? But in order to make sure she doesn't leave the house, we better make a new rule that keeps her away from the doors. So we will make a rule that says she can't leave my office where her crate is located. But just to make sure she can't get out of our office to get to the doors, to get into the yard, to leave the yard, why don't we just make a rule that says she just has to live in the cage of shame? If she can't leave the crate, she can't leave the yard. She can't leave the yard. She can't leave the, she can't leave the crate. She can't leave the uh, door. She can't leave the yard and so forth. And this is the religious way of still determining what is right and wrong. It's rebelling against God's law by declaring God's law is not enough. He needs me to improve upon it. We need to add to it. And this is what Jesus refused to obey. 
He obeyed his laws, not the scribes and Pharisees' rules. For example, they hated the way Jesus practiced the Sabbath. God said, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, six days you shall work, on the seventh day you shall rest. Well, what does that mean, right? What does it mean mean to work? What does it mean to rest? What qualifies? God, you left this too ambiguous, so we're going to add to it. So they made a list of countless rules to ensure that if we obey this list, then we know we are obeying the Sabbath. You couldn't walk more than 1,999 paces. 2,000 steps was too much. You couldn't make more than one stitch in a garment. You couldn't untie a knot. There were rules after rules after rules for every conceivable situation. And then over time, those supplemental rules became just as important as the original command, such that to break them was to break the Sabbath. And Jesus broke all of them. He got a lot of joy out of breaking their rules, but he never broke the Sabbath. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I am not going to be enslaved to your Sabbath rules. I'm not going to live in your crate. I'm going to walk around the house and the yard and enjoy my Sabbath because that is why God gave the Sabbath. So when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, the first and foremost meaning is that he has come to recapture the beauty of the law. When we, de- when we determine what is right and wrong, it leads to either a destruction or an oppression, a destructive life or an oppressive life. Destructive, when we break God's law and suffer the inevitable consequences of life outside the proper boundaries of God. Oppressive, when we add to God's law and suffer under the misery of religious fundamentalism. Neither the unrighteous or the self-righteous are happy. But happiness awaits all of us within the boundaries of properly ordered righteousness. God's ways are good, friends. Don't break them and don't add to them. Enjoy the life he has for you within them. And so Jesus comes to fulfill the law by showing the true meaning of God's law. There's another way Jesus has come to fulfill the law, not just its meaning, but the law's demand. Our passage ends with a terrifying verse. You want to know how highly Jesus regards the law of God? Verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I cannot overemphasize how that would have landed on the original audience. The scribes and Pharisees, their full-time job was the law of God. They devoted their days not just to their personal adherence to the law, but also enforcing that adherence upon others. They were were literally viewed in the religious culture that day as the standard of righteousness. So for Jesus to say, unless your righteousness uh, exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, would have effectively communicated that nobody is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is the point but not the point that they imagined he was making. Because the scribes and Pharisees turned God's law into a lot of religious rules, it provided them an opportunity for self-justification. How can I prove that I have honored the Sabbath? I will turn the Sabbath into a bunch of rules that I can keep. And this is the heart of fundamentalism. This is the heart of religion. 
It's not just that I want to be my own God. I want to be my own savior. I don't need God's authority and I don't need God's help. Well, as we will see in the coming weeks, Jesus is about to shatter the interpretation of the law that they held. When he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, they were thinking they would have to work harder at the rules than the scribes and Pharisees. A daunting task, no doubt. But Jesus is about to confront them with an impossible task. Obedience to the letter of the law is not what is demanded. Obedience to the heart of the law is demanded. Jesus does not ask merely, have you committed adultery? He is going to ask us whether we have looked upon another so as to lust after them in our heart. Internal allegiance to God's law, just as much if not more as external allegiance to God's law, such that your external obedience is nullified by internal disobedience. That's the righteousness Jesus speaks of that far surpasses the scribes and Pharisees and without which nobody, I repeat, nobody is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. When confronted with the demands of religion, we admittedly get overwhelmed with the task before us. When confronted with the demands of God's kingdom, we come undone with the impossibility that is before us. I have to obey in my heart? Impossible. Why does it have to be this way? Why does the demand of God's law go all the way down to the intentions and motivations of our hearts? Because your heart is precisely what God is after. He wants you. Not your religion. He wants your heart. In fact, nothing is more insulting than a cold, forced, religious, self-righteous obedience while internally there is no love for God. God says often in Scripture, spare me your religion if your heart is far from me. This is why Jesus was so much more gracious with the unrighteous sinners than the self-righteous Pharisees, because at least the sinners were being honest with themselves. And so the righteousness demanded in this verse is nothing short than an internal allegiance that yields external obedience. And in this way, nobody is worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. No, not one. So what do we do? If nothing short than a righteous heart can make us worthy, then how can we be worthy? My suggestion to you is to give your heart to Jesus and let him make you worthy. I would suggest you come to him and say, I can't do this. That's what he wants you to do. He would love to make you worthy of his kingdom. Yes, the law reveals to us God's character, God's holiness, all of that, but it is most intended to reveal to us God's love. How? Well, Paul calls it a schoolmaster that leads us to Jesus. Let it do that for you this morning, for the first time, perhaps. Or for many of us, let it lead us back to Jesus again 
Let the unbearable burden of God's law bring you low to the feet of Jesus, where all you have to muster is, Jesus, I can't do this. Will you do it for me? And it's there where Jesus knows he has your heart. The self-righteous would never dream of such humiliation. But those who allow the law, the holy standard of God, to expose us, to expose our unrighteousness, have no problem humiliating themselves at the feet of Jesus. And this is all he asks. The only fitness he requires is to feel your need for him. And so it's there in that heartfelt cry for mercy that Jesus sees what he's always wanted, not your religion, but your heart. And to everyone who comes to him like that, he will say, I'll take it from here. You can't fulfill the law's demand, but I can. And so he gives you his flawlessness and you give him your lawlessness and he carries what once was yours but now is his to the tree of justice, ready to receive the due penalty of the law. And that is exactly what he has done. Brothers and sisters, yes, it is true that you are lawbreakers of God, but you've had your day in court. The charge was high treason against God's holy law, and yes, guilty was the verdict, and hell was the sentence. But your case is now closed. It's over. To quote the substitute, it is finished. Hell's punishment paid in full, and there is no sentence left for you to fear. It's been over for 2,000 years, and it will never be reopened again. Praise his name. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Friends, you are not under the law. You are under grace. Now, out of love for your Savior, obey his law. Make no mistake, the pressure is off. You have been justified. There is no longer a need to justify yourself. But by justifying you, Jesus creates the true fulfillment of the law. The justified don't have to obey, but now they want to obey. They have fallen in love with God's law again. His love for us generates our love for him. And because of love, we no longer view his law as a demand, but as our delight. It is no longer something we don't want to do, but we have to do. It is something we don't have to do, but we want to do. Yes, we fail. Yes, we struggle. That old cursed nature is a tough habit to kick. But in our heart of hearts, every follower of Jesus knows this to be true. In our heart of hearts, deep down at the bottom of our truest self, you find this. I want to obey Jesus. That really is what I want to do. And this is the essence of what it means to no longer be under law, but under grace. What does it mean to be freed from the law? 
it means we no longer have to be told what to do because we want to do it. This is what grace does to us, friends. Grace creates a people who don't have to obey but want to obey. You are not under law when you don't need the law to obey. Let me tell you how I fixed my dog. What happened is she needed the law. And it was a very expensive law. It was an electric fence around our property. (laughs) Put a border around the property. And she had to learn not just where she couldn't go, but more importantly, where she could. That the whole house and yard were hers to enjoy. And she began to enjoy them. And now, you know what? She doesn't even need the, the, the shot collar to stay in the yard. A lot of times we don't even remember to put it on her. Without that collar on, she could venture off, but she doesn't because she doesn't want to anymore. She has learned how good are her master's boundaries. That is what the grace of Jesus has done for us. The collar is off. In a technical sense, his grace is so powerful and scandalous that we are literally free from the law's demands. You can break the law and Jesus will forgive you. You can sin, and Jesus will forgive you. Grace really is that scandalous. I know what you're thinking, especially the parents in the room. Don't tell my kid that. Can't say that. People are going to go crazy sinning. Nobody who has ever known the grace of Jesus responds that way. That assumption that you can't preach grace because it will enable sin, that assumption is built on a faulty line of reasoning, and it's this. Only fear can keep us in line. There is something more powerful than fear. It's called love. Jesus has loved us, and we now love Jesus, and we trust him, and we know our master's boundaries are good, and we don't want to break them. That work in us is what Jesus means when he says he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And herein is that fulfillment. We don't have to obey, but we want to obey. And we long for that day when this complicated struggle of our sanctification will give way to our glorification, and we will forever get to do what all of us want to do, obey God forever. Let me pray. Oh, Father, only kindness, not fear, leads to repentance. And so fill us with your kindness now as we come to the table of your gospel. Create in us a love. It is so overwhelming that all we want to do is obey our Lord. Forgive us where we have failed. Return us to the gospel and show us again the beauty of your law. Through your name we pray, amen.